I'm Chris Runge, and this is Study Hall. Welcome to Study Hall, the podcast dedicated to getting a little bit smarter about advertising. What's up, Study Haulers? So we've come to the end of Tim Wu's book, The Attention Merchants. In this episode, we're going to be covering part five, which is entitled uh, Won't Get Fooled Again, and I think it's probably the weakest part of the book. Part five takes us from the end of the 80s and the early 90s, where TV had kind of reached its absolute zenith and was, uh, was beginning to sort of lose a little bit of traction with the American public. Cable had come out. People were starting to fragment into channels. It takes us from the rise of the internet and brings us all the way to the present day. And midway through the chapter, it starts to fragment and it just sort of becomes a list of different web brands. And I guess you can't really blame them for that. It's kind of hard to tell. You know, that, that, that border between history and current events is always difficult to navigate. And as you get closer to the present moment, in my view, things get a lot more confused and jumbled because, you know, it's hard to make sense out of events as they happen. A lot of times it just seems like a bunch of random noise and, and terrifying nonsense. <laughs> So I don't, you can't really blame Wu for that. Although I think what you can call him on is uh, the lack of callbacks to the, the history of attention merchandising in part five. There are some real opportunities to kind of make the point contrary to Andrew Essex. And I think he would, I think Wu would agree with me on this, that there's really nothing new going on in the digital age. There's a lot of, or, and what I mean by that is there's a lot of stuff that we observe in uh, digital attention merchandising that has been seen before. And I think that can help guide our decisions as professionals. And Wu really misses, I think he really misses the opportunity to kind of call people to task on that. Although Wu has just come out with a new book, which I'm really looking forward to reading. And perhaps he gets into it there. But anyway, that's my big knock on this chapter. It's a little bit, it's a little bit too current events, a little bit too current events for me. So anyway, with that, let's get into it. We start, part five starts with chapter 20, the kingdom of content, and we open up in the kingdom of content, we open up on Bill Gates. Bill Gates posts an essay on Microsoft's website called Content is King, which is a little bit surprising. Uh, at least I was surprised when I read it, because I had completely forgotten that Gates was the guy who kicked this off. Gates writes, content is where I expect much of the real money will be made on the internet, just as it was in broadcasting. Okay, that's a reference to directly to David Sarnoff, I think, or at least that's Wu's opportunity to talk about David Sarnoff, because what was David Sarnoff? David Sarnoff was the head of a company that made what? Radios. And he was interested in doing content so people would buy more radios and use them. And that was clearly what Gates was into as well. He was saying, you know, we're going to make the most money, not just by making computers, we're going to make, we're going to make money by putting something out on computers that people actually want to interact with. And then Wu goes on to make the point that, you know, not unsurprisingly, in 1996, uh, the internet was pretty uninspiring. I was there, let me tell you. It was not, it was nothing like it is today. And it was, a lot of the content was highly specialized, wouldn't have been very interesting to most people. Um, so, then the, as the chapter progresses, we watch as Gates sort of starts to build this thing called MSN 2.0, which I would completely forgotten about. I totally forgot that they had this but they they started downloading it um downloading it they started loading it onto every microsoft made computer every every system with a microsoft os ended up with this microsoft 2.0 on it 
And Gates spent a ton of money trying to create content for this Microsoft 2.0 web interface. And it was a, a colossal failure, which is interesting because, you know, here again, here's another example of somebody having the right idea, which seems so common in the digital world, have the right idea, but somehow they execute it the wrong way. And they just kind of um, uh, become a interesting artifact on the ash heap of history. So anyway, not to, I, I feel like I'm digressing. So they, uh, they come out with Microsoft 2.0 and they just, they kind of get it wrong. He hired a bunch of people, high, high dollar creative talent out of New York and the other, and LA and all the, you know, various creative hotspots. And, um, they just, they, they missed and, you know, you, you kind of can't blame them. I mean, they were trying to create both a new technology in the, in the Microsoft 2.0 sort of substrate and they were also trying to create the content itself and it just proved to be too much and they, they got woo sort of makes the point they kind of got the tone wrong uh and they also got uh a lot of the the tech the technical side of it wrong the, the technical side of it wasn't that great either there were a lot of problems with slow load times too many ads all that kind of nonsense so so interestingly what became of microsoft 2.0 well it turned into msnbc instead of trying to make the internet sort of more interactive and 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 kind of television 2.0, they turned around and tried to make cable into cable 2.0, and it just sort of fell back into being a cable channel. And we all know the story of MSNBC, and if you don't, go ahead and Google it. Um, they just sort of end up becoming an old-school cable channel. So anyway, so there's, there's Microsoft kind of uh, sadly crashing and burning. You feel kind of bad about it. Um, but very doing everything right. You know, the thinking was correct. The execution was wrong. Uh, too bad for them. And then as that's happening... There's a couple of other things going on. First, there's a company called GoTo, which another one I've forgotten about, another another uh, little uh, gigaw on the ash heap of history. It was a pay-for-play, basically straight-up payola um, search engine. And they started duking it out. It was led by a guy named Bill Gross, not the Bond King Bill Gross, but this other, other guy, Bill Gross, um, Internet Bill Gross, Bill Gross 2.0. And it was this kind of awful, I don't know, it was like something like an eighth grader who'd read too much Ayn Rand would think up. You're like, you paid money and you got to, you got to the top of the, you got to the top of the search results. And it was, of course, a crashing failure. And it was hated by Google. Sergey Brin um, and Larry Page knew all about GoTo, that GoTo was in their world and they hated it. They wrote this really scathing paper, Woo Sites about uh, what a crappy product it was and about the dangers, it's interesting, uh, especially in light of current events, about the dangers of search engine bias. And they were saying, you know, search engine bias is really terrible uh, and we hate it and, we, and, it's, and it's hard to detect. That was, that was another interesting part of it. You think search engine bias is easy, you would think it would be easy to detect as a layperson in terms of coding and mathematics and stuff like that, I, I, I would think that, that search engines are pretty straightforward, but evidently not. So anyway, Google wins because Gross is basically a clown and uh, Anne Rand is not real. And Google, of course, we all know the story of Google, right? And so now we have an entry point to the internet. That's what this whole thing was kind of about. They're trying to get an entry point so you can get onto the internet to get at the content that is going to begin to capture your attention and that they can then monetize, right? And this is another part of where the absolute genius of Google really shines forth. I mean, Google's getting a lot of, you know, the big internet players now are getting a lot of, a lot of hate 
justifiably so in my in my view. They haven't been honest about the um, the privacy implications of what they've been doing. But uh, I think unfortunately that's starting to eclipse some of the real brilliance of of Bryn and uh, Page. So anyway, what am I talking about? Well, what I'm talking about is the fact that they they sort of looked at advertising, realized they had to use the advertising model in order to support themselves financially with this sort of simple but brilliant insight that they could take your search inputs and connect it with um, adver- advertising that was related to those search inputs. They executed advertising really better than it's ever been, adver- conceptually better than it's ever been executed before. So they're measuring your commercial intent and they're serving you ads that relate to that intent. Simple idea seems totally obvious now, but it was by no means obvious then. And that was a really big, that was a really big advance. Then they executed it better creatively. Back in those days, kids, most internet browsers were full of garbage. They just, it was all like, it looked like a, it looked like they were trying to give you a seizure. There was just so much stuff on a lot of those browsers that you just sort of like, what? I just want to get on the internet. And of course, Google came out with that beautiful clean page with the, with the search bar. And it was, it was almost like, um, they made you a beautiful little sailboat that you can just go off into the internet and, and search around. And, and so they, they very justly uh, won the day and they became the entry point to the internet. So at the end of the chapter, we have our way onto the internet for all of us. And it's Google. Which brings us to chapter 21, which is entitled, Here Comes Everyone. So not surprisingly, you get this excellent, uh, you get this excellent way onto the internet. And everybody jumps on it and goes sliding down it like the awesome water slide it is. And we all become creators and attention merchants, right? Because the barriers to public expression have come down. There's a way on. And uh, so we learn about the rise of the blog. This is what uh, Wu has to say about, about a New York Times article about um, Megnut, which was a blog back in the day. I actually went and looked up Megnut. The last entry was in 2013, I think. So here's, here we go. This is, what, this is what Wu had to say. It was, the author Rebecca Mead explained, a new kind of website that is known as a weblog or blog. As she explained, having a blog is rather like publishing your own online version of Reader's Digest with daily updates, yet with a conversational element. Other people who have blogs, they are known as bloggers, read your blog, and if they like it, they blog your blog on their own blog. Of course, one didn't have to blog about your problems the way Meg did. You could blog about anything. Here was an attention-capturing format that was truly different, even if the force drawing attention to it was not quite clear. So that's pretty much the, that's pretty much the, uh, the dynamic he gets into in Chapter 21. And of course, it spawned things like Drudge Report, Slashdot, Boing Boing, many, many others. And it sort of um, created a radical fragmentation of audience on the internet far far beyond anything we'd seen on cable it was just literally anybody could get out there and do anything um and zephyr teachout actually uh who you might remember as another new york state political figure um who didn't actually make it to uh to to office in new york which is a shame because i might move back to new york if tim Wu and zephyr teachout ended up in charge she makes a simile of pastors and flocks and a a real yeah, so overtly draws a um, metaphor with the with the Reformation, and this is the Reformation with a vengeance. There was something for everybody, and you could share a big deal because ideas ramify and go viral. This is all you know. This it's it's easy to forget how big a deal this is. This didn't used to be the case. You couldn't just sort of put some stuff up on the internet 
and have a bunch of people go to it based on whether or not they're interested or not. I think about this podcast. If this was an old school radio show, we'd be canceled. But there's zero cost. I can just put it up there. And if you're interested, great. If you're not, hey, that's cool. Go go check out Reddit or whatever it is that you're into. So that's a huge, huge opportunity and beautiful thing about the net. But again, it's not something, you know, it's not something that's that's unprecedented. The degree is unprecedented, but it's not like we've never seen a new publishing format that that's radically available to a giant group of people that it's never been available to before. Like, for instance, the Gutenberg Press, right? That changed that changed the way ideas were exchanged in Europe. Or the Parisian poster explosion that we encountered earlier in the book. This would have been a perfect opportunity to draw some parallels and make the point that the digital age is a technological difference, but it 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 has important similarities to an earlier time from which we can draw important lessons. So um, this really is just, again, this is the, the digital age is just, it's just past trends that are projected more strongly onto our culture because the technology is more powerful. Um, not to say that the web isn't a big deal, but when people are trying to tell you that everything has changed because of the web or because of ad blockers or something, that's, it's nonsense. It's not true at all. I mean, he kind of gets at it, and maybe he's leaving it to us to come up with it, or maybe he's being a good conservative attorney and not putting himself out there too much and overcommitting to an idea, which I, I understand. If that's why he did it, then you really can't blame him. But, <clears throat> I mean, the book was written in 2016, or it was copyrighted in 2016. So, I don't know. I think, I think this, uh, it's hard not to look back on the rest of the book and then read part five and not say to yourself, well, here's, you know, here's a bunch of stuff that we've already seen before. So anyway, back to the, back to the chapter. Um, there really was something for everybody. And culturally, it had a huge impact. 35 million Americans, according to Nielsen, were reading blogs in 2005, which is insane. When you think about, so the 10 years between Bill Gates' content is, is king, nine years, if you want to be scrupulously accurate. 35 million Americans got online and started reading blogs. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's a huge, huge, huge increase in, in reading material and attention. I mean, it's just, it, it truly was a revolution, although not in, in degree, not in, uh, not in anything else. And it culminates in, or culminates, or, or at time actually um, acknowledges this in 2006, and they make you the person of the year. I remember this cover. It was like a, one of those crappy... Um, sort of printable mirrors. So when you, help, when you looked into the, the cover of Time Magazine, there you were sort of, sort of, sort of staring back at yourself because you are now in control of the media. And then the estimable Dave, Dave Barry weighs in and says the following. We can no longer compel people to pay attention. We used to be able to say, there's this one really important story in Poland. You should read this. Now people say, I just look up what I'm interested in on the internet. And then we end the chapter with, with Wu sort of saying it was only a temporary respite from the professional attention merchant, right? And the professionals would be back soon. And, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I think if you look at something like a YouTube or a BitChute and you look at the amount of people that are making... See, he's not really... He doesn't really address video. And to be fair, it's, it's a little early to address video in 2005, 2006. Google was... and had not bought YouTube then, and YouTube was not anything like what it was, and I don't believe there was even a bit shoot back then. And the internet's ability to carry that kind of traffic didn't exist. You couldn't, you couldn't really watch videos on your computer, as I recall, in those years, um, at least not at the rate we can today. And I think when you look at 
you know, where we are today in, in 2018, in the closing, closing weeks of 2018, I think it's really hard to say, you know, when you look at, it's really hard to say that um, the professional attention merchants are back. In fact, you, you know, you look at the crisis that CNN is going through and you look at the crisis the, that the Wall Street, you know, the Wall Street Journal tried to take down PewDiePie because um, they, according to PewDiePie, they were jealous of his um, reach and the amount of uh, views he was getting. And you can see that for yourself. Go online and look up, look up the, the um, relative exposure people get. And you'll see that the legacy media it really tr it truly is a legacy media. This this Dave Barry thing really is happening. People are so anyway. Not to not to digress totally, but it's really hard to agree with this with that that statement. I think at the end of of this chapter that the the professional attention merchants were going to win. I think it was more like the the battle of the bulge. You know, there was a counterattack. There was a fairly effective counterattack by the professional attention merchants. But here, as I say, in the closing days of 2018, I think it's pretty clear that the professional attention merchants uh, are going to lose this war. And, it's, and they, they put up a fairly good fight, but I have, if I had to put down some money, I would say it's over. And we're looking at, um, we are looking at some kind of really permanent fragmentation, unless um, there can be some anti-competitive stuff happening. And this whole shadow banning and kicking people off the internet somehow takes on some kind of commercial. There's a, anyway, there's a lot of stuff going on. Again, right? Terrifying nonsense that we can't really make any sense of. That's current events. Uh, it remains to be seen. But again, if I had to put money on it, I'd put money on. I'd put money on you and me, frankly. All right. So back to the, back to the book again. We get to the end of chapter 21 and... and the blogs are in the ascendancy, but the the uh, attention merchants or the professional attention merchants are are going to counterattack. And how do they counterattack? Well, chapter twenty two, the rise of clickbait, shows us how. So we open up on a guy, another person. I love how Wu always turns it into stories of personalities. It's 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 really a mark, I think, of his of his excellence as a storyteller. Uh, so the professionalization of attention capture happens when a guy named Jonah Peretti was supposed to be working on his master's thesis, does this prank email chain with Nike where he tries to, I don't know if you guys remember this, but there used to be a, um, I remember this, you used to be able to have whatever you want written on your Nikes. So he wrote them and he said, I want you to write sweatshop on them. Hilarious. And they, and he got into them with, he got into it with them, of course, because of course, Nike, you know, uh, in a beautiful sort of uh, vignette of corporate hypocrisy. Nike's not really about writing whatever you want on your sneakers. It's just about writing, you know, a little circumscribed Overton window of what they they want you to write on their sneakers. And step outside the Overton window, and you get into a hilarious email exchange with their customer service. And and Peretti puts it uh, viral. He sends it out there, and it goes viral. And ends up he ends up talking about it on national television. And from there, so from there he. He parlays this into a whole career. He moves on to a company called iBeam in New York City and basically starts doing web-based performance art centered around contagious media. And he became a specialist in doing contagious media. So this is around 2004. And Peretti um, falls in with some Democrats who are out to beat George W. Bush, which uh, I really, really wish they had done. And I bet a lot of Iraqis wish they had done. But they didn't. Um, but in the attempt to take down George W. Bush, they found the Huffington Post, right, which was set up to be the anti-drudge report. 
and Huffington Post gets into clickbait. Now, if you guys spend any time on the Huffington Post, you totally know what I'm talking about. But they've been doing this for a long time, they, and you, it shows when you look at the Huffington Post, which I haven't done in some time, actually, full disclosure. Uh, I don't really go on the Huffington Post these days. Um, but they honed the art of grabbing industrial levels of attention from the web. And classic, you know, in classic web style, Huffington Post, while they, they were harvesting a lot of attention, didn't seem to have made much money during this time, they began to set the standard of this kind of weird mix of serious news, commentary, and gossipy dreck. Now, I don't know if you've, you had this experience, but I did at, around that time when you'd start, you'd start looking at the Huffington Post or you'd, you know, other news aggregator sites, and they'd, they'd sort of have like really serious news stories that you could really get your teeth into, and then they'd have the terrible celebrity gossip that was a pure waste of your time and actually made you dumber. And they started, this started happening. They started living side by side. And that wasn't, that, that didn't always, that didn't used to be the case. You know, that, that wall used to, people used to really think about their media brands. And I think, the, and the thinking prior to this Huffington Post dynamic was, well, we, we're the Wall Street Journal. We don't print those kinds of articles. Whereas the Huffington Post turned that on its head and said, well, we're going we're gonna to have, have everything all in one place. So instead of having to buy People Magazine and the Wall Street Journal, you can get the horrible celebrity gossip that makes you dumber and the interesting uh, stuff that you're going to talk about at cocktail parties all in the same place. And we also meet this guy named Armando Lavanderia Jr., otherwise known as Perez Hilton. His site blew up and he was selling, he ended up selling ads on his site for $9,000 a week. I mean, just ridiculous. So we get, we get to this place where, where some people on the internet have begun to, the money starts to come to them and they begin to get insanely wealthy. At the same time, the small bloggers are getting super discouraged. And uh, Wu quotes a guy named David Weinberger, um, quoting someone else, Clay Shirky, uh, or citing Clay Shirky to sort of capture that moment. Here's the quote. Shirky's analysis showed that the blogosphere wasn't a smooth ball where everyone had an equal voice. Rather, it was dominated by a handful of sites that pulled enormous numbers, followed by a long tail of sites with few followers. The old pernicious topology had reasserted itself. We should have known that it would, and it took a while for the miserable fact to sink in. So the question then becomes, if you want to participate in putting your ideas out online, where do you go? And that's where the chapter closes. We learn about a new kind of web property. So this is how Wired Magazine characterized the relationship. The time it takes to craft sharp, witty blog prose is now better spent expressing yourself on Flickr, Facebook, or Twitter. So now there are new intermediaries between people expressing themselves on the internet and the people who are reading those expressions. And uh, here's how Wu, this is how Wu characterizes that. Old wine and new bottles? Not quite. In the guise of bringing people together, these networks would wire the most invasive attention capture apparatus yet invented into millions upon millions of lives. What were the terms of that arrangement? As with any user agreement, it was in the provider's interest that one click accept quickly and not wade into the fine print. I think you could say the genius of Facebook, Twitter, and Flickr, and sites like that, where they became a kind of super blog. And the evil genius of those, especially Facebook, or most famously Facebook, was that they took advantage of human frailty, i.e. the unwillingness to get into the fine print, to give themselves permission to start grabbing up people's data. And that's when we get to chapter 23, entitled The Place to Be, which is all about the rise of Facebook, led by the pernicious nerd 
Although I don't actually, I don't think you could really call him a nerd, Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not going to go on and on about the rise of Facebook. Everybody knows all about the rise of Facebook, but Wu kind of diagnoses the reason it rose and he puts it down to two things. One was it had a vector and two, it was, it had indeterminacy. So what do I mean by those two? What does Wu mean by those two things? So the vector, simple, it started at Harvard. Harvard had a lot of cachet. It spread through colleges and it kind of somehow got that magic youth thing going. And then indeterminacy. It was whatever the user wanted it to be. You know, they, they took, they, they captured the best of the blogosphere, that dynamic of everybody was a creator, and then they made it easier to do. And instead of having to learn to code HTML and blah, 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 and do all that, you could just fire off your thing into the Facebook and you were saying stuff and you were getting the same, that, that same dialogue was going on. And Facebook was smart enough to realize it didn't, didn't really matter what it was. Like they didn't, they didn't have to be in charge. Right, which was the mistake that the, I think one of the mistakes the people that were m making MSN 2.0 probably made. They were kind of coming at it the old way of doing creative, which was, I'm going to write a novel essentially, and you're going to be in, you're going to be I'm going to I'm going to do creative. I'm going to be creative, and you're going to appreciate my creative. And if I'm a good creative, I'm going to I'm going to more often make art that you like than not make art that you like. Totally wrong. You just got to get out of the way and let people make the art that they like. That's just how it goes. Look at memes. Same deal. Anyway, um, they won the attention grab. They monetized it carefully with nano-targeting using all that personal data. And they beat up MySpace, which had more ads, uh, pretty much that way. And they had better servers than Friendster, if you, <laughs> if you guys remember Friendster. I didn't. Um, it was close to Facebook conceptually, but they just they didn't have the tech. So there again, you know, as a pro, you want to look at that. Those are good stories to, to sort of talk about the way that strategy, execution, and technology work together, right? So after uh, we get done with the Facebook chapter, the pace of the book really picks up and we kind of just go through three chapters that are four chapters that are really just a, a recitation of current events. So I'm gonna go through those super quickly because I'm sure everyone is extremely familiar with them. Chapter 24 is very short. It's about the rise of microfame and the ability to measure and monetize microfame digitally. So basically the rise of what we now call influencers. Then we go on to chapters 25 through 28, which essentially comes down to the story of the rise of the fourth screen, which is the basically what became the smartphone. It actually starts with the story, actually very interesting story about uh, how research, research in motion executed on the BlackBerry starts with the BlackBerry, goes through the iPhone, and, and we've all lived it. So I'm not going to spend really any time talking about it. Wu kind of finishes up these chapters by talking about the rise of garbage content and the, I mean, maybe the neurobiology is a little too fancy a name for it, but the, the attention, the stimulus response bonding, we all kind of go through with our cell phones, which, you know, in some cases gets to be pretty pathological where we're constantly checking it, it's constantly making a demand on our attention, and we're constantly, even when we're trying to learn things, or we're using the cell phones for good, I guess you could say, we're constantly having our attention distracted by ads. And then he finishes on the rise of the ad blocker, um, when Apple rolled out their ad blocker software, and we're, suddenly we're back to Andrew Essex, and the question becomes, is the ad blocker genuinely uh, the end of advertising as we know it? And I think by this time in the book, we, we know enough uh, from Wu's excellent history of advertising that the answer is likely no. This is what Wu says about the end of advertising. 
But taking a long view, as our story does, such revolts against advertising must be seen as part of a larger dynamic. We are speaking, after all, of an industry left for dead at least four separate times over the past hundred years. Again and again it has seemed as if the party was over and that the consumers had fled once and for all. And yet, the attention merchants have always found a way to overgrow the bright new machines that seem to be hacking through the old growth foliage. So there's Andrew Essex's question about advertising put to rest by Wu. But then Wu, like a good lawyer, uh, asks another question, a question, sort of, sort of a zoning question about the where and the when of attention merchandising. So where is it okay to do it and where is it not okay to do it? And he sort of makes the point that tradition and custom used to protect us, you, right? You didn't call during dinner time. Remember that? Um, and you never showed up before 11 a.m. on a Saturday. You know, and I think he rightly says that that no longer protects us. We're, we're kind of bent over the, these fourth screen smartphones 24-7. And it is a real, it is becoming a real human problem. So this rewilding idea makes its appearance. And he kind of makes, and it's a, it's a, it's a good argument. It's kind of the solution Paris came to with all the posters. You know, stop attention merchants from enticing us to root around for dibs and dabs of their entertainment when we should be doing better things. And here, you know, religion and spirituality makes a welcome appearance. And he talks about, he references the monastics who use their attention to improve themselves and makes the point that, yeah, you know, we need focused attention to cook dinner. We need focused attention to be present with our, our spouses and our children and our friends we need, and our family. We need focused attention to do all kinds of really important things. Think through who we're going to vote for, say. And you really have to be careful about frittering away your attention. And there's a, that put me in mind of a great passage in the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, where the, <clears throat> the devils are talking and one of them says to the other, you know, I had a guy, I had a patient who, when he showed up in hell, one of the things he told me was, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but he, he essentially says, you know, I realize now I wasted all, I, I wasted my time on nothing. I didn't, it wasn't that I was doing bad things. I just wasn't doing anything. I was, you know, looking at newspaper columns. I think that's, and that's, and the interesting thing about the screw tape letters is, of course, it was written before the internet. It was written really in the radio age, I do believe. And I guess it just kind of underscores the, the big picture, which is that attention is a really big deal. And we need to really think hard about who we give it to and why. Wu sums up the problem uh, like this. Since the attention industry, like any other, demands constant growth, the terms of the deal are constantly evolving, usually to our disadvantage, with more attention seized for less diversion in return. Periodic revolts against the arrangement are, therefore, not just predictable, but necessary. For if the attention economy is to work to our benefit, and not merely to exploit us, we need to be vigilant about its operation and active in expressing our displeasure at its degrading tendencies. In some cases, as we've seen, its worst excesses may have no remedy but law. Okay, so I'm going to give that a qualified agreement, but uh, I, I don't think law can be... A very useful remedy. I think culture needs to change and people need to change. Unless we do, you know, unless it's very simple stuff like, like, the, like Paris did. You know, just, okay, you, here's a place you can do it and we don't want to see it anywhere else. Simple rule like that. Maybe that has a chance of working. But anything else, like I say, I think we, we have to take a lot more individual responsibility for the things we pay attention to. And we, and we, we have to somehow find a way to own our attention. Now, we don't probably don't have to become, you know, 
monks that get up at 3 a.m. And, and, and meditate all day long. But we probably shouldn't be bent over our smartphones 24-7 either. We need to find some place that works for us and works for the people around us and the people who rely on us. And that's kind of where he leaves it. It's a very interesting book. Uh, overall, I'm going to give it... I'm going to give it an A. I think it's a great book. I think there's minor there's minor quibbles you can have with with section five, and there's minor quibbles you can have with, you know, um, the tone. And you know, I think I'm maybe a little bit more of a populist than Tim Wu is, but hey, it's a it's a great history. It, I think it's a fair bid to be, you know, a definitive historical text in advertising. And so, if you want to learn about the industry that you earn your money in. Uh, you could do a lot worse than read this book. It will get you from the very roots of the modern advertising age to the present day uh, in, a, in a great sort of readable format that's um, not stuffy or pretentious at all. I'll give the book 90%, 99% 99 on that. Tim Wu gets an A plus on that. You know, I think one of the things I, I would knock him on is, uh, like I said, the the... Part five is a little bit too current events, and I think it's it, it's not enough in there. There's obvious, there's not enough in there that sort of underlines the fact that the digital space is uh, not all that different from all the other advertising spaces that have gone before it in the modern age. I mean, he kind of, he, you know, you just heard the quote, he, he gets to that at the very end, but I think he could draw more conclusions or more parallels. He could draw more parallels as he, as he was writing Section 5. So I think that's, that was maybe a little bit of a miss on his part. And then the other thing I, I think is interesting about the book is this kind of notion that somehow there's some pernicious force that's, that's making all this n terrible content popular, and it's somehow outside of him, or if only... Um, if only people understood the world like I did, we wouldn't have this problem of, of bad content. And he quotes a lot of people that, that, that kind of take that approach. And I think that's, I don't, I think it's a lot more difficult an issue. The attractiveness of bad content, I think, is a lot more difficult an issue than just there's a group of other people that are making it uh, popular. I think all of us, you know, like that Time Magazine cover, you know, the internet really reflects ourselves back onto ourselves. And you can say that about all kinds of art, and you can say that about all kinds of publish. you can say that about all kinds of communication, but the internet, that's especially true. Maybe it's humanity's greatest performance art piece, right? Think about it that way. It, it really does reflect our soul back onto ourselves, and there are parts of our souls that are not that great, that are just not, and I think it's a little bit dishonest to suggest that those people over there are doing this and we don't play some part in it. You know, we have to look at we have to look at ourselves and take some sense of agency, take some ownership over this and if we don't like what's going on, for instance, if we don't like the privacy invasions, we don't like the selling of our data, it's on us to stop it. We can't it's it's not enough to say, "Oh, boohoo, dirty old Mark Zuckerberg fooled me into giving away all my private information on Facebook." That's kind of a cop out. Is just to pick on Mark Zuckerberg. Is Zuckerberg a bad guy for doing what he did? Yeah, he sure is. He's a terrible human being. So why are we associating with him? Why is he, why is he even, why has Facebook got even one subscriber? The other thing I just wanted to sort of cover off on about this book is, you know, it came out in 2016. It's the closing month, the closing weeks of 2018 now. I just want to reflect for a couple of minutes on how 
how much has changed even in the sh- two short years since this book came out. And briefly, I think it has to do with people realizing how powerful the internet actually is and how some actors are using the internet to affect popular opinion. Of course, I'm talking about the 2016 elections in the U.S. There's just this heightened interest in protecting the First Amendment online, uh, what kind of speech is acceptable, what kind of speech isn't acceptable. And then there's another axis of debate about privacy. It's turning very, very hot, and it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. And a lot of companies that looked invincible when this book came out don't look so invincible anymore. And that ferment and uh, disruption is going to be interesting to watch. So that's, that's my thoughts on The Attention Merchants. And uh, next time we're going to be reading a really interesting book, um, Frenemies by Ken Aletta. And I've already you know, started in on it, obviously. Um, and I think Essex and Wu kind of are fighting about the end of advertising from the technical side, right? Is advertising over because of ad blockers? And the really interesting thing about um, Frenemies is, is it turns out, if you, you know, reading the book, you get the impression that it's not the technology that's, that's threatening the way advertising is right now and the, and, the, and, the, and the difficulty of working in the business and the, and the sort of horrible life that too many people in the business lead. That's not about the technology. That's about the loss of trust. And, it's real, and the loss of trust can be traced directly to human frailty and human greed. So it's a, it's a, it provides an interesting contrast to the last two books we've looked at. Um, and it's and I think it, it it offers maybe a better diagnosis of what's wrong with the advertising world than just oh there's ad blockers they're terrible because I think Wu rightly says actually ad blockers are really not going to be a big deal they're going to yes it's a, it's going to be part of our world and fragmentation and advertising is going to change but you know technology is there's always going to be a technological substrate on which advertising can project itself always and I think he's right about that. So thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Congratulations, you just got out of study hall. I want to thank Henry Veloso for the music and say sorry about the editing. I did it myself. Study Hall is sponsored by Douglas and Mundy, an advertising and marketing consultants. See you next time.